You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to this edition for ReachMD. My guest is Dr. Stephen T. Harris. Dr. Harris is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Harris, first of all, thanks for joining us here on ReachMD. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. My first question for you is, tell me a little bit about what you're going to be talking about today in general terms. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about what's been changing with the osteoporosis world over recent years. You know, there are a couple of continuing struggles at this point, Dr. McDonough. One is that there are an awful lot of patients out there who have osteoporosis who are not being identified and treated. And secondly, there's a lot of concern about what's going on with the various osteoporosis medications. We have these terrific medications, but everyone's worried about long-term consequences of therapy. Sort of tied into that, really, is the notion of a drug holiday, whether because of safety issues or efficacy issues, we really could or should stop treatment after a few years. So those are the key issues. Identifying patients, making sure that they get on treatment, thinking about risks and benefits of therapy, and whether it's possible actually to take a so-called drug holiday. You know, when we talk about issues associated with osteoporosis, I think it's safe to say most of us understand it's a very big clinical issue and it's something that we have to deal with in both women and men. But one of the things that doesn't necessarily come up or talked about openly is all of the studies where there have been concerns raised. Because I know as a primary care doctor, I look at it and say, gee, what meds are safe? Which ones aren't? Could I be doing more harm than good by treating them? And I know you addressed that. Talk a little bit about that point. Yeah, you know, I think in a very general way, Dr. McDonald, we're all struggling with this issue right now, and it's not just confined to osteoporosis. Uh, It's, I think, most evident in osteoporosis, though, because we're trying to help people prevent a problem that on a day-to-day basis has no symptoms. Osteoporosis obviously puts people at risk for having painful fractures, but on a day-to-day basis, they don't hurt and don't feel better taking their osteoporosis medication. So in the media are full of all these stories about possible long-term consequences of treatment, adverse effects, et cetera. People understandably are daunted. They're a little discouraged because they're not feeling better. They're taking their medication, and oh, by the way, there are these background concerns. Fortunately, however, those background concerns are really rare. I mean, uh, despite all the discussions about osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femoral fracture as a consequence of long-term bisphosphonate therapy in particular, those complications really are very unusual. How do you educate your patients about that? Like, they come in to see you, obviously. They're, they're probably at the point they see you looking for assistance and looking for help, and you're trying to guide them. But how do you educate them about those studies and say, well, this is a small number and put in perspective. Yeah, it's a very nuanced uh, discussion. I think, again, we're all trying to come up with a verbiage that really works the best for us in terms of talking to patients about these issues. But if I tell someone that they have a 20% risk of breaking something and that we can then reduce that risk to perhaps 10%, that's a pretty palpable benefit. I mean, we can recognize what we're trying to do. If, on the other hand, the consequence, the worry the possible adverse effect of long-term therapy is one in a thousand, one in 10,000, maybe even less common than that, then there is some risk, but that risk has to be balanced against benefit. When you're diagnosing osteoporosis and you're initially looking at someone evaluating them, um, you might look at things like, you know, do they have a smoking history? Are they thin? Uh, have they been athletic? You know, the risk for those risk factors. But what do you do as far as the diagnosis? How do you make the diagnosis of someone who you're concerned about and might need treatment? And how do you follow them up? Yeah, terrific question. So, you know, once upon a time, when we 
went through training many years ago. Osteoporosis was a clinical disease. Little old person falls down and breaks something, that's osteoporosis. And that is still true today. So we see people who are shrinking due to multiple vertebral fractures, that's osteoporosis. They break a hip, that's osteoporosis. They break a wrist, that's osteoporosis. But starting about 20 years ago, uh, we started to use bone densitometry as a way of helping to identify people at risk. So as you know, there are well-established standards for low bone density that put people at risk for osteoporosis. But we've also started to fold in a number of other risk factors. There's actually an online fracture risk calculator called FRAX, F-R-A-X. And the FRAX calculator has been built into a number of software programs related to densitometry now. That FRAX program is terrific because it gives us the ability to take bone mineral density, height, weight, age, a few other factors like previous personal history of fracture, ongoing medication use, et cetera, and to come up with a real estimate of what the risk of fracture might be. And that's a very powerful tool for us because we can then talk to people and say, if you do nothing, your risk of fracture over the next decade is X. And if we start medication, if we try to be proactive, if we try to be preventive about this, we can really decrease that risk, not in a way that can be defended as being absolutely entirely safe. No medication, nothing in this life fits that bill but that we can start medication with a very reasonable risk-benefit ratio. And FRAX testing is something that most primary care doctors, doctors in practice, could use pretty easily? Yeah, right now it's still a little bit awkward because there's an online fracture risk calculator that takes a little bit of effort to get to, but predictably there's a FRAX app. And, and as I mentioned, uh, FRAX is also being built into a number of software reporting programs for the densitometry units. So sometimes when you get a densitometry report back right now, they will have done the calculation for you. FRAX is expressed in terms of 10-year fracture risk. So it says, absent pharmacologic treatment, your risk of breaking your hip over the next 10 years is a certain percent. Your risk of having any major osteoporotic fracture is a certain percent. And, and, and those estimates of fracture risk, I think, Dr. McDonough, are a very powerful tool to help us then have a thoughtful conversation with our patients. So when you're ordering tests, what tests do you go to to try to look at that? Yeah, you know, the standard density testing is pretty well established right now, although there are a few exotic imaging techniques out there. The, the workhorse, the standby for many years now, has been called dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, or DEXA, and, and that is the test. Uh, t- typically, it's used to measure the spine and the hip, and again, we come up with statistical comparisons of what those densities then mean, uh, sometimes in context for age, but often in comparison to a young adult. So there are well-established standards for diagnosing osteoporosis and osteopenia. We make the diagnosis. Maybe the FRAX test is supporting the fact we should begin treatment. You start to initiate treatment. Where do you go from there? Where do do you start? Yeah, it's interesting to try to monitor people on therapy because one of the great frustrations in the osteoporosis world, Dr. McDonough, is that the things that we measure don't actually change all that much. Uh, So, for example, you and I were just talking about bone densitometry or DEXA measurements. Well, in response to therapy, you'll often see the DEXA measurements simply stabilize. They don't do anything very interesting. Now, sometimes they will go up a little bit, but those changes are usually quite small on the order of a few percent. And it is critical, it is really critical for us to counsel our patients that we know that the bone density isn't going to change very much, but that there's going to be a big reduction in fracture risk. The underlying concept is that treatment these days improves not just bone density, which is what we can measure, but actually improves bone quality. 
So again, in response to a typical osteoporosis treatment agent, you might see a 5% improvement in bone density, but a 50% reduction in fracture risk. In other words, the clinical benefit, the real reduction in fracture risk, outstrips the rather nondescript change that we're seeing in the surrogate measure. Now, that, that's a lot different from what we usually see in medicine, where we're used to measuring something that changes a lot, and yet the clinical benefit is pretty modest when you do a big study. Well, this is exactly the other way around, mm -hmm. that patients really need to clearly understand that they're getting a lot of benefit, even at a time when the bone density isn't changing very much. So that's interesting because, I mean, one of the frustrations that I have, you know, I'm a primary care physician in family practice, I do have patients who kind of start with the medication and I go through my med reconciliation. One of the great things about electronic medical records now is and meaningful use and going through all those hoops we have to jump through is you're now doing a little bit of med reconciliation for uh, meeting meaningful use standards. And when you do it, you go, well, wait a minute, you're not taking that anymore? Why did you stop? Well, I didn't see any purpose, like you alluded to, or I, it was expensive, or I got some heartburn, or you know, whatever it was, uh, they saw something in the press, they stopped. At that point, at that juncture, where you can then intervene again, this is a very important step then to try to get them on board. You're absolutely right. And again, this is, this is not a one-size-fits-all conversation. We have to be very sensitive to the concerns that our patients bring to the table. And you know, the media, understandably, tend to focus on risk. And it's up to us as a healthcare professional is to try to balance that risk with benefit. And you know, that's a discussion that doesn't often happen. Uh, we have the tools to do that. It's important that we do that. And, and I just want to emphasize another point that you just touched on in, in passing. With the, with the advent of the electronic medical record, and we're all obviously rapidly moving in that direction, I think it's going to be easier for, to, for us to identify those patients who are at risk. And what one of the great tragedies, again, in the osteoporosis world has been that so many patients, so many older patients who are fracturing, are treated as if they have an orthopedic problem, which they clearly do, but there's no clear identification of the underlying issue, which is osteoporosis. So uh, even if we look at all the blabbing that's gone on over the past uh, almost 20 years now, we're still identifying and treating as osteoporotic only the minority, the distinct minority, of older fracturing patients. And we can do a lot better than that. We need to recognize that there's an underlying issue that needs to be addressed. What other key points are you talking about in your lecture that you can share some pearls with those listening on ReachMD? Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting to realize that we have this whole variety of medications that are available to us right now. So once we've identified patients, we've made a commitment to treat, we have a thoughtful conversation about risk and benefit, we have a whole bunch of choices. And again, tailoring the medication to the specific patient. Despite all the negative publicity, the so-called bisphosphonates will continue to be used very widely for a long time because they're very effective in reducing fracture risk and they're safe and effective in the vast variety of medication uh, patients who are so treated. You know, we read the studies and you see the things about fractures and the negativity. In your personal experience, and I know, you know, you look at evidence-based information when you're building up a lecture, but in your own personal experience, uh, anecdotally, what have you seen as the biggest concerns? What, what are the concerns and what have you seen as positive outcomes having used these medications for quite some time? Yeah, I think the greatest concerns, um, understandably, are the safety issues, and the, the, the safety focus shifts a little bit from time to time. Half a dozen years ago, everyone was worried about osteonecrosis of the jaw, that very rare dental complication. 
uh, that that I think has uh, faded away a little bit into the background. It's still obviously there as a significant concern, but it's relatively rare. Again, best guesstimate, one out of 10,000 or one out of 100,000 patients on osteoporosis treatment with a bisphosphonate each year might be at risk for that particular complication. Now the attention seems to be shifting towards what are called atypical femoral fracture, these weird breaks that are occurring after some years of treatment. Those two are fortunately very rare. Uh, they tend to occur probably in somewhere between one in 10,000 and one in 1,000 patients. So the, so the great challenge to us, again, Dr. McDonough, is to try to balance these worries, these things that are keeping people from sticking with their medication with the perceived benefit of that treatment also, underscoring benefit at a time when so much of the discussion is focusing on risk. We only have a couple more minutes with Dr. Stephen T. Harris. He is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and we're talking about osteoporosis. Clearly one of the, the watershed, I guess, moments was the Women's Health Initiative and the fact that treatment for women at menopause was, was clearly changed when they looked at estrogen, the effects of estrogen, and the controversy surrounding that. Where have you seen changes pro or con as far as osteoporosis in women beyond menopause as a result of the Women's Health Initiative? Yeah, it's a very thoughtful question. I think that the Women's Health Initiative, which really changed the whole discussion, uh, because many, many women who had fervently believed in hormone therapy were now chastened to find that perhaps the story was a little bit more complicated. And I think that the cynicism that came about as a consequence of that study has carried over into other arenas as well. So many of the patients I talk to these days are really very concerned about the possible adverse effects of therapy. The challenge again to us being to try to bring that into perspective, to, to acknowledge that there are concerns, to give us an estimate of those concerns, or the magnitude of risk as best we can, but then to also bring benefit back into the equation. Anything that I did not bring up that you feel we should talk about briefly that you think is critical for our listeners to know? Well, I appreciate the, that open-ended invitation, but I, I would go back again to the notion that, that we can identify patients at risk. Clearly, the older fracturing patients are of particular concern, but we have the ability with bone density and these other clinical risk factors to identify patients at risk also. It would be no good to just be able to identify risk if we couldn't do anything about it. And we're blessed by having a whole variety of medications that are very effective and are actually quite safe. Now, not entirely safe because there are these background concerns, but really quite safe. And we need to find ways to encourage our patients to persist with therapy, acknowledging that lifestyle will help. Calcium, vitamin D, and exercise do have benefit. But sadly, there is no evidence that lifestyle alone will prevent all bone loss. So we're always in the position of having to think about cleaning up our collective acts, doing what we can in terms of nutrition and exercise, but realizing that there's a role for the judicious use of medication on top of that. Dr. Stephen T. Harris, I want to thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time and your comments, and uh, I think it was definitely illuminating for many of us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure visiting with you. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You're listening to ReachMD. You've been listening to The Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.